Welcome back to Fake News with Clarence and Jane. This episode, we spoke to Hannah Clapham, an assistant professor at the Sosui Hawk School of Public Health, National University of Singapore. In this episode, she talked to us about her experiences as a mathematical modeler during an outbreak, as well as what it's like to be working on COVID-19 right now. So Hannah was actually our first guest ever, so we wanted to thank her for being so patient with us throughout the whole process. Um, But also since it was our first ever recording, we were not yet the equipment pros that we are today. So we apologize in advance for the sketchy sounds in some places of the recording. Um, For that, you can blame Clarence because he's not here to defend himself. Anyways, we hope you still learn lots from the episode and enjoy! Oh, and this episode was recorded on the 28th of February. In this episode, we'll be talking about what's known about the origins of the epidemic and what we know about the COVID-19 virus and how it spreads, uh, what we don't know and how this might influence our predictions of how the epidemic will evolve. And here to discuss these issues is Dr. Hannah Clapham. So Hannah is an assistant professor at the Sosui Hock School of Public Health in Singapore, and she focuses on the use of mathematical models to study how infectious diseases spread and uh, the effectiveness of disease control measures. So thank you for joining us, Hannah. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Um, maybe you can start, um, you can give us some views about how uh, the, or what's known about how the epidemic uh, started. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So what we know about the epidemic is that it seemed to originate from Wuhan in China. Um, and there were initial reports of cases of pneumonia and um, with an unidentified cause that started coming out of China, um, I think late last year. I feel like time has gone so so strangely since the start of this uh, this uh, epidemic. But um, And then I was looking back through news reports and initially we didn't even know whether this was something that spread from person to person when this first came out. That was the first thing that had to be established and it soon became fairly apparent that it was spreading from person to person. Um, and the reason we worry about that is, of course, that at that point that it has the, the um, potential to be to spread quite widely. So the thinking is that there's an animal source somewhere that it first came out of and then into humans and then is now spreading between humans. Um, and then there was lots of spread in Wuhan and um, then increasing spread um, in other places in China. And so one of the things that's been quite striking is the, the speed at which the epidemic has, has evolved. Um, and so I wanted to ask you what, what is known about the transmissibility of the virus. There's been a lot of, a lot of uh, discussion about how easily it spreads. Uh, and so maybe you could give us some insight as a mathematical modeler in terms of how you study the transmissibility of, of the virus and what approaches you use and what kind of information you use to, to determine how, how rapidly it, it's likely to spread. Yeah, so early on in the epidemic, this is the big question really that mathematical modelers are trying to understand. We we know that we have this virus, we know that it seems to be spreading from person to person, but we really want to know how effective is that spread, how effective is that transmission, and how quickly is it happening. Um, one of the ways that we think about that as mathematical modelers is we have a number that we call the um, reproductive number or the reproduction number. Um, and what that effectively tells us is if we have one infected individual, how many secondary individuals do we expect that they will then go on to infect? And as you can imagine, the higher that number, the faster we start to see outbreaks because we're seeing more and more people getting infected. 
In terms of the spread of the outbreak and the speed at which that happens, it's not the only important thing. There's also, um, we also want to know what is the time between infections in one individual and another individual, and that will also be important in our estimations of how effective this virus is at spreading. And the way that early on in an epidemic we try to get um, numbers, estimates of this are, is looking at the way that case numbers are increasing over time. And that's often from surveillance reports with, with all of the issues that come from looking only at surveillance data. At the beginning of the epidemic, that's all the information that's out there and that's what, what needs to be used. And you could see sort of early on how difficult that was because there was such a wide range of numbers coming out in that, in that early period. Um, I think we had between two and even up to four, four or five at some point then in estimates coming out. The real, the important threshold for that number is is one. So if it's above one, then we're seeing more than one infected individual from each infected individual, and that means that we will see an increase in cases over time. And what do you think are some of the reasons behind the kind of initial variability in this in these estimates of the reproduction number? Yeah, that will be something I think that once we start to look back on this epidemic, there'll be lots of meta-analysis papers looking, trying to understand what that was. So there was some difference in methodology. Um, there are various sort of simple models that you can use to estimate this, but there are also more complex models. Um, and then another variability was the way that the data was being interpreted. So at that point, we have, we have some measure of cases over time, but we don't, there was not a sort of clear case definition, for example, over time. So modelers had to sort of look at the data that they had and try and understand what it meant in terms of what was actually going on. So that was a big uncertainty at that point. And we've seen quite a lot of papers using data from travelers who, uh, from, from China. Um, some of the arguments, I think, are that some of those data are more reliable. Can you give us uh, some of, uh, kind of the advantages or some of the benefits of using those kinds of data as opposed to data from inside China? This is a really nice way of thinking about it, I think. So what, what was done in those analyses is initially was saying, okay, currently in the beginning of somewhere where there's a real epidemic happening, for whatever reason, there's going to be differences in counting cases, difficulties, sorry, in counting cases. You know, if it's uh, the point where the healthcare system is completely strained, keeping track of cases is not the sort of the top priority at that point. So there were people trying to get an understanding of what was going on inside by looking at what was coming out of the of the epidemic. So, so what people are doing when they're doing that is they're saying, okay, well, from these places, we think there are these amounts of travelers. Well, we have data that there are these amounts of travelers going from place to place. And once we start to see reported cases in certain places outside of China, given the amount of travelers, that gives us some information about what must be going on inside China. And you've actually seen that um, kind of same uh, technique applied to Iran more, more recently. Okay. Uh, one other issue that's been discussed a lot is about uh, the role of uh, asymptomatic infection and whether people can be truly asymptomatic where they are infected but don't experience any symptoms whatsoever and what, how important those, kind, those infections are for uh, transmission. For, so can these people with no symptoms uh, spread the, the virus to, to others and what some of the implications of that might be. Do you have uh, any perspectives on, on asymptomatic infection? Mm. Yeah, so before coronavirus, I spent a lot of my time thinking about asymptomatic infections for dengue. It's something that I think is really interesting and really important. Um, 
in an outbreak, um, getting a handle on that is important for two reasons. As you say, the first is that we really need to know, is this happening? And if it is, um, are people not showing symptoms? Are they infectious? And the reason that that is an issue is, of course, that it's really hard to find those people and they are not sick. And so they're sort of going about their daily lives and can be leading to larger numbers of infections at that point. Um, the other reason that we want to know the number of asymptomatic infections is that it gives us a, a true estimate of the severity of, of the disease. So if, we, if, we, if there are lots of these mild infections going around, then it might be a bad thing for transmission, but it might actually be a good thing in terms of what the ultimate impact of um, the, the virus will be because there is this large pool of people that are not getting very sick when they get it. Um, and it's hard, it's hard to get that kind of information early on, um, partly because the tests to do it might not be available, you often want antibody tests to do that. And secondly, again, it's not often a priority early on in an infection, you know, the hospitals want to be finding the severe cases so they can treat them. And, and that kind of stuff. Uh, in terms of getting a true picture of the spectrum of, of illness, I guess one other issue that's been discussed a lot is, is the mortality and how, how lethal this new coronavirus is, and we've seen reports of mortality going anywhere from like 0.1% to 8% or something like that. So um, I guess some of, the, some of the issues that people have grappled with are about how to interpret the mortality data. So can you give us some insight into some of the difficulties? Mm. So early on in an epidemic, um, one of the issues with uh, mortality data is that what we often have is we have numbers of incident cases, we have the numbers of cases that are happening over time, and then we have numbers of deaths. But there's going to be a lag between the incidence of the case and the death outcome occurring. And so very on in an epidemic, if you're dividing the number of um, deaths by the number of cases that you've, you've observed, you'll be, you won't be getting an accurate picture of what's going on there. And that can be even harder for something that it seems like might be the case with the coronavirus, that actually it can take quite a long time from infection through till, till death. So that's something that modelers have grappled with and to sort of try and interpret that data or at least understand how those biases are, are affecting it. Um, the other thing is that it's it's often very hard to um, to ha to be diagnosing even among cases that are showing up in hospital. You know, very early on, they wouldn't have been testing every pneumonia case that came in, for for example. So you also wouldn't have a very good number of the sort of denominator um, of that necessarily over time. Um, and then I think the other thing to think about is that it's not necessarily a sort of static number. You know, it's something that could be changing in different settings and different times, and, and that can be something that could be affecting the, the estimates that are coming out. It's been very clear from the reports that um, certain groups are at higher risk of mortality, like the elderly and um, people with underlying conditions. Yeah, that's right. And that's something that's really important to know for sort of targeting of protection and, and that kind of thing. Uh, there's also been a few clusters of uh, cases uh, where there seems to have been a lot of transmission. So we've heard a lot about the potential for super spreading. Uh, maybe you can give us uh, some thoughts on uh, what super spreading is and, and how it might affect transmission in an epidemic. Mm. So what super spreading means is that there are certain individuals um, or certain events that happen in a population that mean that that R0 number that I was talking about, the effective reproduction number, that's the average number of secondary infections from one, infection, from one infected person. But what you get when you have super spreading is that you have 
a very skewed distribution. So you might have some people that infect very large numbers of people. And that can be for a number of reasons. It could be because it's the, for whatever reason at that time, that person is in a certain situation where they're coming into contact with a lot of people. Maybe that's through a job or some kind of other situation. There, from what I've been reading, some people do seem to think there might also be biological super spreading, that some people are just more... Um, more prone to, to spreading, but I that's not something I actually know a lot about and mm. something I'd quite like to understand a little bit more more about. There's been some talk about that in, if you can identify what that super spreading is, in a way it can make the epidemic easier to target because if you know where that's happening, then that sort of gives you a place to go in. One of the places people really worry about super spreading is in hospitals, for example. And if that's really where you are seeing a lot of the, the large amounts of transmission, then you can try to sort of target those 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 places so i guess one strategy could be to try and understand what leads to these super spreading events and then use that information to target containment exactly, exactly. control measures That's right. Right, yeah. yeah okay uh, and then maybe we can ask you uh, ask you um a bit about how you think the the epidemic is likely to evolve in the coming months in the in the past week or so we've seen a lot of developments in terms of the widening of the geographic spread of the epidemic uh, into Europe and parts of the Middle East and uh, Korea. Um, so what, what are your thoughts of likely scenarios that are, um, we're likely to see in, in the future? So for a while I've been saying, I've been hedging my bets, I've been saying it's unlikely we will not see cases in every country in the world. That's what I've been saying for a while. But I think the WHO came out today and said that every country has to be ready for this it's coming and I, I think that's that's kind of the point we're at now um, you know at first we were only seeing transmission from China to other countries but now we've seen a huge amount of transmission from countries outside of China to other countries outside of China and that's the point at which it starts to get very hard to to contain on a global scale that doesn't mean that countries cannot do effective containment within their countries necessarily um, that's another thing that has to be sort of figured out um, by, by each country. And there's a lot of debate about the kind of effectiveness of containment measures. Do you think they've been effective so far? Do you think they're it's something that countries can sustain for long periods? Or do you think that there should also be a focus uh, in terms of trying to mitigate some of the impact of the epidemic? Yeah, so there's been a lot of, we're sitting in Singapore right now, there's been a lot of focus on Singapore and how effectively they've been containing uh, the, the, the spread currently. Um, and it, you know, it, it very intensive contact tracing, very intensive quarantine, isolation, travel um, restrictions do seem to be doing something. But time will tell whether that's enough even to with that very, being very. Um, and it's it's not whether it's done well or badly. It's just a case of the various things about the transmission might just mean that that's not not a long-term strategy and as you say even if it's effective for a short period of time at some point if you're having so many cases that's a lot of effort going into doing that and it's sort of decisions to be made as to whether that's the best use of um, of, of resources or whether it's actually better to be putting in other social distancing or various other strategies that will help shape the the transmission in the kind of longer longer term but even me when I first heard the the sort of phrase moving from containment to mitigation there's something that feels a little bit kind of scary about that I think but I think it has to, you have to think about it in the terms of it's being realistic about what what the situation is and really using the resources in the best way to to 
help the whole population be be protected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in terms of mitigation, what what kind of strategies do you think countries should be thinking of? I mean, you mentioned social distancing, so the idea is to um, you know prevent large gatherings of of people to to uh, reduce the possibility of transmission. But is there are there other other kinds of strategies that you have in mind? So within social distancing, I guess there's other there's um, workplace sort of. Um, not exactly, well, perhaps closures, but sort of workplace strategies to in, try and limit um, contacts between people. So I think uh, I saw someone say that this is the time to be investing in um, online meeting platforms because actually there's a lot of that going on. You know, people are working from home, whether they're under quarantine or whether they're, the company has decided that it's time to, to be um, not having everyone in the same office at the same time. And so those are the kind of things that country by country, country the governments are starting to think about. The other thing that's been done in quite a lot of places is school closure. Uh, so before here I was working in Vietnam and um, Vietnam has a very long holiday over the Lunar New Year um, and the schools have not gone back since uh, the Lunar New Year in, in large parts of the country. Um, and that was a decision taken to, at that point, try and really halt the... the any spread that could have been happening at that point but that has huge knock-on implications and probably actually closing schools also leads to workplace uh, distancing because there's a lot of parents having to stay at home and look after their children and and those kind of things so all of these things can be thought about and can be put in place but there has to be a sort of understanding of really what could what are the possible ways that could be changing the transmission and also what is the economic impact of that? And, and this is not something I feel at all qualified to talk about, but it's something that has really become apparent to me throughout this um, outbreak that we can't just think about these things sort of in isolation. It really has to be thought about as the whole the whole impact of those. Decisions. Yeah, yeah. I think there has been some discussion here in in Singapore also about um, ways that you can use the the epidemic as an opportunity to um, develop some areas like online deliveries and those kinds of things. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what what countries think of in terms of some of these measures. Absolutely. Uh, maybe we can just end on one final question, uh, which is to ask you uh, what you found most striking about this epidemic, or what has kind of uh, resonated with you, or you've, something that you've found or that's been unexpected for you. So personally, um, before I moved to Singapore, I said I was not going to work on any outbreaks. That was my my decision. That was something I was not going to do. But that has not been what has happened here. Um, so I think uh, the reason that I had said that actually is that this is I find this kind of very fast paced working and this making putting things out there with huge amounts of uncertainty very stressful. And I think, but I've also I think throughout this come to realize that that's a really important part of work what someone who does mathematical modeling can do because we are in a position to be able to really quantify that uncertainty and then understand how that is impacting what we're saying about how many cases there are going to be and what people are thinking oh should we be closing all the schools suddenly now like what 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 kind of are those impacts so I think I've got a personally I've got a fresh um, uh, respect for that that kind of work Mm. And then I think it's just been so fast moving. Like it's sort of every morning and I think everybody around the world is finding this, you know, and now everybody's watching, waking up to the new country that has it, the new number of cases, all those kind of things. So it's, um, yeah, it's been quite, quite something. 
Yeah, it's really been interesting. Every every report or every document you write is out of date within a day. So it's absolutely. <laughs> we've really been having this trouble. Yeah, that's right. We do a piece of work that's predicting something, and then like, oh well, that's already happened. All right. So. <laughs> Uh, so I guess one thing that brings to mind is uh, about how we communicate all this uncertainty to the public. Maybe that can be uh, the topic of another podcast episode. Um, but thank you very much. It's been great to have your, your insights. Um, and I'm sure you'll be watching the, the, the epidemic with great interest. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of this episode. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email us. Otherwise, don't forget to subscribe to Fake News to get updates on the latest episodes. In the meantime, remember to keep washing your hands and see you next week. How do people start these things? Welcome to the Fake News Podcast. Ding, ding, ding.